Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then your voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard said that it had a hundred. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. And the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom of the arm of the Lord is revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words, he that which judges him 
the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. It's hard to use this illustration, but I do think it serves a point. And so I'm going to use it, and uh, you can pretend that I didn't if you don't like the illustration, okay? But in a pub, a last call is actually a legally mandated announcement to make. It's, it's, lo- it's legal that they have to make this announcement. Essentially, once it gets close to closing time, the barkeep will shout out, or he'll ring the bell, and he'll let everyone know that the next 15 minutes is the final opportunity to, drop, to buy a drink from the bar. It won't be long before the lights go off, the door is locked, and the opportunity is over. And here, as we come to this section of scripture, is Jesus, the light of the world, giving his final call to the people of Jerusalem. Before their opportunity is over, And they walk back into the darkness again, having rejected the blazing light of God in the flesh. This is the last little section. This section here is the last time that Jesus is going to speak to the whole of Jerusalem, to the whole of Israel. After this, he's going to speak to his disciples in the upper room. Then he's going to speak before the tribunal at Pilate and Caiaphas. Then he's going to be crucified. So this is the last invite, the final call for the people of Israel to come to their Messiah. So we're looking at this. The hour has come. The hour has come. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the purpose of the hour. Why is this hour here? And in verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. And that word troubled, it means unsettled, disturbed, like, like when water is, is unsettled. The same word for troubled is used when Herod realizes that a Messiah is born, the King of the Jews is born in Matthew's Gospel, and and Herod is troubled. It's when the disciples are in the sea in the storm, and they see Jesus coming in the storm, and they think it's a ghost, and it says they were troubled or disturbed at what they're seeing. When the water at the pool of Bethesda began to bubble up, this is the same word, it's troubled. And when Jesus looked on Mary and the others weeping over Lazarus, he was troubled at what he saw. So here is Jesus of Nazareth, the sinless one, fully God and fully man. He knows what he's coming. He is now in Jerusalem and the hour has come. And it says that he was troubled. This is the emotional heart of God. This is not just theory that we believe in. This is a person. Jesus is a person, fully God and fully man, experiencing all the emotions of this hour. This hour is his death. The religious leaders have plotted and schemed in John chapter 11. And as the other accounts of the uh, the Gospels seem to suggest to us, Judas Iscariot has already had his initial conversation with the religious leaders. He's already plotted his death as well. He's already agreed to betray Jesus. In just a couple more days, Jesus is going to be brought uh, towards the uh, tribunal. 
A company of a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. Do you know what a company, a battalion of Roman soldiers is? That's 500 to 600 strong men trained to kill and torture. That's literally their job is to kill and torture people. 500 of them. He's going to stand in their midst. They're going to strip him naked and tie him to a post. They're going to take a whip of leather with lead and bone tied to it. And they're going to scourge him. The Jews had a limit of 39 whippings. The Romans had no limit. And many people died from this scourging alone. They're going to then strip him naked, pulling rough clothes off of his bleeding body, and then roughly throw a robe over his open wounds. They're going to twist a crown of thorns, uh, thick piercing thorns, and shove it into his skull, all while mocking and spitting at him. Then already a bleeding, broken mass of open wounds. They're going to strike him on the head with a wooden staff. They're going to tear off that robe again and then roughly put his own clothes on him. Then they're going to force a hundred pound wooden beam across the bloody pulp that was his back. And force march him out of the city and up a hill. There they would shove him to the ground and his hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross. After which he would be hoisted up in the baking heat. Naked before everyone, to die slowly in agony and shame. My soul is troubled. But there's so much more than this that's coming for Jesus. While hanging there, he would receive the sin of humanity into himself. The pure and spotless lamb, the sinless man, would receive the weight of every twisted, perverted, rebellious, evil deed of the human race past present and future heaped onto himself every sin that you've ever committed and then after that moment the cup of baptism that he was to drink the god's righteous fury and wrath on sin would be felt and experienced by jesus as the father as we read in isaiah 53 would crush his only son on the cross that was the hour That had come to Jesus of Nazareth. And he says my soul is troubled. Jesus essentially says this. As he says here. What can I say though? My soul is troubled. But what can I say? Can I say father save me from this hour? And the answer is. I can't say that. This is why I'm here. Essentially Jesus says. How can I ask to be spared from this hour. When this is the very reason I was born in Bethlehem. The very reason I was raised in Nazareth. The very reason I'm here on earth in human flesh. This is the hour planned before God ever said, let there be light. It says that he was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. This was the plan of God before there was ever creation. That he knew, as he said, let there be light. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, let us make them. He knew that this hour would come. And he says here, the hour has come. But he says at the end of this verse, for this purpose I came to this hour. So we ask the question, what is the purpose of the hour? For this purpose I've come to this hour. What is the purpose of the hour? And we see a number of things. The first thing we see here is the purpose of the hour is to glorify the Father. He says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Jesus has told us in John already that everything he's doing and saying is from a desire to glorify his father. He says, my meat is to do the will of my father. And even now at this very hour, his whole purpose 
is to bring glory to his Father's name. And God the Father speaks now in verse 28. This is the third time in Jesus' earthly ministry. First at his baptism, second at the transfiguration. And now here at the end, the Father speaks again. He says, I have glorified it. And what he's saying here when he says, I have, is this. My beloved son, your earthly ministry, your life up until this point has brought me glory. But then he says, and I will glorify it again. My beloved son, what you're about to do is going to bring me glory. As human, whenever we're facing something that's difficult, uh, something big or anxiety causing, we begin to become much more self-focused, don't we? We, as it says, we curve into ourselves when trouble comes. But Jesus' whole ministry was spent under the shadow of the cross. And throughout those three years, his heart was towards others. It broke in compassion for people. And his heart burst with desire to bring glory to his father. And even now at this hour when his heart is troubled, he's saying, may it be for you, God. May it be for you. What a savior he is. Uh, now, they, the people around him, they believe a storm has thundered or an angel has spoken. And Jesus explains in verse 30, the reason God the Father spoke audibly is not for me because he does that. He speaks to me all the time. But the reason he spoke audibly for all of you is for an, yet one more sign that I am who I said I am. So that's the first thing, to bring glory to the Father. The second reason is to bring judgment to the world. Verse 31a, now is the judgment of this world. It says, now is this judgment. Jesus has said that he hasn't come to judge the world. And in just a few verses, he's going to say that again. He also said that the judgment will be after the resurrection in John chapter 5. So how is the world judged at this hour? Well, I have three options for us to consider. The first one is this. It's moral condition. The moral condition of humanity is now fully revealed as unworthy and fully steeped in sin. As Sam too prophesies, the God-rejecting world has plotted and schemed against God and against the Messiah. And so is judged as guilty at this hour. What greater sin can humanity perform than to commit the rejection and murder of their creator? Uh, Patricide is one of the worst uh, crimes a person can do. How can you kill your own father? How can you kill your own mother? And here the whole of humanity is plotting and scheming together. Jews and Romans together to have the creator crucified before them. The second thing is this. The question every human will ask or will be asked when they stand before God one day. Because you will stand before God one day. Whether you believe that or not it's happening. Have you trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus? In that way, this hour is the deciding factor of your eternity. What do you do about this hour that has come to Jesus? Do you believe in it for your salvation or do you reject it? Meaning you will rise again to life or you rise again to judgment. Now is the judgment that the world is is declared guilty for crucifying even their creator. Now is the judgment, because this is the decision to make, the eternal decision to make. And also Jesus says in John 16 that he has overcome the world. This is the third option. Jesus has overcome the world. As Sam 2 says, God sees the plotting and the schemes of man. And what does he do? He laughs at their pathetic schemes. And Jesus is laughing. God is laughing at the schemes of man to destroy him. 
Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus is declared victorious over the rebellious world. So the world is judged as wicked because of this hour. The world will be judged by what they do with this hour. And this hour is how Jesus overcomes the world through his death and resurrection. So now is the judgment of this world. Now is the casting out of Satan in verse 31b. This isn't just uh, the world's worst crime, rejecting and murdering God in the flesh. This is the worst thing Satan has ever done. Like the worst thing Satan has ever done. His greatest act of rebellion. Before this, he's attempted to sit on God's throne as if he was God. Then also, he, as cast out of heaven, he deceives Adam and Eve. Tearing human hearts away from the creator. And he does that ever since. But here, he is working with humanity to scheme and to plot against the human race, against Israel, against the Davidic line, and to corrupt physically and spiritually to bring about the agonizing death of God in the flesh. And yet Jesus says that through this hour, Satan will be cast out. It says, now is the ruler cast out. This plot of Satan through Judas Iscariot, because it says that Satan entered the heart of Judas to have Jesus crucified, which looks like victory to Satan, is the very thing that will render Satan cast out. Now is he cast out. But we have a problem because 1 John 5.19 says the whole world still lies in the power of the evil one. So how can he be cast out and yet the whole world still lie under his influence? Other verses talk about him blinding people so they can't believe the gospel. Others talk about him walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So what does this mean that he's the cast out one? Well, again, a few things to consider. This hour is the beginning of the long defeat of Satan. This hour of the cross is the decisive blow where Satan is hit to the death. He's, 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 he's slain. He's like a, a berserker, a berserker, a Viking berserker. When you, when, you, when, you're like, when you chop off his arms, if you chopped off the legs of a berserker, he would still hold his sword and crawl towards you trying to kill you. And here's Satan rendered useless, powerless, but he's still dying. And in his death wriggles, he's trying to take people with him. So this is the decisive blow. The other thing is this. Satan ruled over all the nations of the earth. He's the prince of the power of darkness. And this is true. This isn't just fairy tales we tell people. Satan ruled over the nations of the earth. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is now going to plunder Satan's kingdom. He's going to walk in and plunder it. He's going to take Gentile nations who for millennia have worshipped false gods. And through, according to Paul, through these false gods worship demons and Satan ultimately. And Jesus is going to get up from his death and walk into the nations and say, Come in, you're mine, and plunder the kingdoms of Satan. And take from him humans lost in bondage and darkness. The other thing is this, the resurrection, because this is Satan's greatest scheme to kill Jesus. And through the death and resurrection, he's going to bring, as Colossians says, open humiliation. You tried to kill me, and you did kill me, and here I am alive again. What can you do now, Satan? And so he's humiliated. The next thing is this, Jesus' followers are now able to resist Satan. The Bible says in James, resist the devil. And what's he going to do? He will flee from you. You, little you, Satan, the the prince of the power of darkness is going to flee from you. Because you have the power of God within you. Satan 
is dethroned, but he's still lively until Jesus comes again to deal with him once and for all. Maybe this will help you illustrate. This is the Titanic, as I'm sure you're already aware. The Titanic actually sank at 2.20 a.m., but it hit the iceberg at 11.40 a.m. p.m., 11.40 p.m. Now, you could effectively say this. Once it hit that iceberg, you could pretty much say it sunk, right? It's the decisive blow. Like, it doesn't sink for another three hours, but the moment it hit that iceberg, it was done. It was sunk. It was defeated. It was destroyed. So even though it actually sank literally at 2.20, it effectively had sunk at 11.40. And in the same sense, Jesus is saying that this hour is the decisive hour in which Satan will receive the blow of defeat at the cross. This is amazing. It looks like the world of unbelief had managed to judge Jesus. And Jesus says that this hour of me on the cross and the resurrection uh, will be the one where you're judged. It looks like the powers of darkness have managed to publicly humiliate and defeat Jesus. And Jesus says that through the cross and resurrection, he has brought public humiliation and defeat to them. He turns it all upside down. The next thing then we see is the saving of humanity in verse 32 to 36. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. There's, there's wriggle room for what this all, because it, it's... Um, the word peoples isn't in the original, but most people believe it's all people to myself. He's spoken earlier in this passage through an illustration about being planted as a seed. Now he speaks clearly. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. And they, everyone knows what he means by that. This is the crucifixion. I'm going to be lifted up from the earth on the cross. This must have been a Jewish saying at this point. If I am lifted up. He got lifted up yesterday. Those fellows who did that, they were lifted up. They were crucified. Because when he says that in verse 34, they said, how can you say you're going to be lifted up? We thought you're going to live forever. So they know what he means by this. But through that crucifixion, which will lead to the resurrection and the ascension, the nations will flock to him to experience salvation. If it wasn't for this hour, we Gentiles would still be lost in darkness without hope, without God, and on our way to a lost eternity forever. But because of the cross and resurrection, the nations have come to receive salvation. The Holy Spirit would come and he would convict men of sin, the judgment that they're under, and point to them to Jesus and his death and, his, and the righteousness that they can receive through trust in him. What was going to look like defeat as Jesus was tortured executed, murdered, and buried, would be revealed to be the great moment of redemptive history. It looks like it's over. He's just been tortured and executed. He's dead in a tomb. It's over. And it's going to be the great moment of redemptive history when he rises from the dead, triumphant over his enemies, and for all eternity will sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. But they're confused in verse 34 to 36. They, they say many prophecies uh, the Old Testament says that the Messiah is going to live forever. He's going to have an everlasting kingdom. What do you mean that you're going to die? And then they say this. Who is this son of man? Who is this Messiah? Basically, they're looking at Jesus and say, what type of Messiah are you? One who's going to die? That's not the Messiah that we want. This same crowd who just a few passages above have cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now I turn to them and say, what kind of Messiah are you? You're not the one we waited for. A humiliated Messiah? A crucified Messiah? A defeated Messiah? No, thank you. But Jesus wants their salvation. He says to them here in verse 35 that he's the light of the world. And if they would just come to him, he can make them the children of light. 
Or as John 1 says, as many as received him, to them give ye the power to become the sons of God. Jeremiah 13 verse 6 says, give glory to God and start walking in the light before the darkness comes. That's the the paraphrase. Give glory to God and start walking in the light before the darkness comes. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. Give God glory. Come and believe in me before the darkness comes. People of Jerusalem, choose to walk in the light. There isn't much time left for you. Why don't they have much time left? We're going to get to that in the next section. But it says here after this that Jesus, in verse 36, went away and he hid from them. Where did he go? For how long was he away? We don't know. But why do this and why record this? Because it's a symbol of what's coming. Jesus said earlier to them, you will look for me and you'll not be able to find me. And where I go, you'll not be able to come. Because you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. So he hides away to show them what the future hiding away will look like. We get then to verse uh, 37 to 43, the unbelief of Israel. And this is no longer Jesus speaking. This is the author of John's gospel speaking and giving a commentary. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't these people? I mean, God has spoken to him. Why did they not believe who he is? All these signs. And here the author of John is telling us why Jesus didn't speak. John is looking back on those days of the crucifixion, a number of decades later, and he gives this commentary of why these things have happened. The first thing is this, in verse 37 to 38, they did not believe. All of the signs, the healing of the lame man, the opening the eyes of the blind man, the raising of a dead man, and the many signs of John 2, and the hedrons speak about in John 11, this man has done many signs. Although it says here, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed? Who has believed? These people refused to acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Now, if you look closely in verse 39, it says, therefore, they could not believe. So because they would not believe, therefore, they could not believe. What on earth does that mean? Well, it means this in verse 39 to 41, they could not believe. God's judgment on these people's refusal to acknowledge Jesus as their savior is to harden their hearts and darken their eyes. Verse 39 begins with this word, therefore. In other words, for this reason. Since you will not believe, I will make it that you cannot believe. God's response to their refusal is that eventually they would not be able to believe. This is quoting then verse 40 from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. Or Jesus, the glorious one, on his throne, reigning. It says that their eyes will be blinded and their hearts will be hardened. So they could, cannot see. So they will not be able to understand. So they won't be able to turn and be healed by me. Like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, he hardened his own heart towards God. So what did God do as a response, as an act of judgment? He hardened Pharaoh's heart even further. Like the nations rebelling against God in Genesis chapter 11. And the response is God saying, fine, have it your way. Romans 1, he gave them up. He gave them over to their own dark hearts and minds. If this is what you want, have it then. And he seals them into darkness. And so God watches the unbelief of his people Israel during the three years of Jesus' ministry where God in the flesh is working miracles. 
And they refused to believe him. And so as an act of judgment, God here hardens their hearts and blinds their eyes so that there would come a time that they could not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And this is why Jesus is warning them here. Walk in the light while you have it. Because the darkness is coming. What is the darkness? Where God switches off the lights for you. And you never get a chance to repent again. And you walk into darkness. And where I am, you will not be able to come. And you will die in your sins. You have a brief moment to trust before the darkness comes. And then we get to this. Why they could not believe. Verse 42 to 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, the Sanhedrin, the 70, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They believe, but they're afraid. A lot like in chapter 7, verse 13, where the common people don't want to talk about Jesus because of fear. A lot like chapter 9, verse 22, where the parents, uh, the blind man's parents don't want to talk about it because they're afraid. And here the religious leaders are afraid. It's because they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. Chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said that to the religious leaders. You can't believe. You can't believe because you love yourself and you love the praise of men instead of loving God. Fear of man, love of man's praises was one of the great motives of unbelief for the Jewish people, especially the leaders. So is this genuine faith where it says they believed in him? Is this genuine? Uh, Personally, I don't think so. In John 2, it says people believed, but it says also Jesus knew their hearts. That it was a fickle faith. In John 5.44, Jesus says they love receiving glory from one another. And so they can't actually believe. John 6 has many people following Jesus and saying, oh, you're the one, you're the one. And then thousands of them walking away from him when they don't like what he has to say. A fickle faith. So here in John 12, is this genuine faith that these men have? I don't know. But this is one of the biggest reasons people don't come to Jesus. They are men pleasers. They love their reputation. They love what it gets them. Power, possessions, popularity. And to go public about believing Jesus is the Messiah is to lose all of that. Like I said at the kids' talk, it's not cool to trust the Messiah, Jesus. But I think that it doesn't tell us whether they were genuinely saved or not. It leaves it ambiguous in purpose so that each of us will ask ourselves, is it genuine? Do I really believe? Have I fully trusted in Jesus? John wants us to seek our own hearts about these things. All right, we get to the last little section then. As we get to the actual final call of Jesus of Nazareth in verse 44 to verse 50. It says, uh, Jesus cried out. He's hidden. He departed from them and hid. Now he's back and he cries out. So Jesus is back on the scene. This is his final message to Jerusalem. This is their last opportunity before the blindness comes. In just a few days, many people in this crowd are going to bay for the blood of Jesus. Blinded and hardened. And they're going to call for the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looks at this crowd of people. And what he's doing is he's calling out individuals in this crowd. Before it's too late for you. Come. It says he cries out. This is a passionate plea from the Savior. Looking upon those who are going to slaughter him in just a few days. Inviting them to come first. And what we have in verse 44 to 50 is like diluted juice 
right? Fully concentrated. Before you dilute the juice, you get fully concentrated, right? And you don't drink that. You have to pour water in it. And, and the diluted little bits, this is, this is what we see here in verse 44 to 50, is everything he's been teaching so far from John 1 to chapter 12, diluted into just everything he's trying to say. This last appeal, this final call to come and believe. And a lot of what we see here is already in John chapter 5. And so, just quickly, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying this, this is who I am. I am the sent one in verse 44 to 45. If you believe me, you believe the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. I'm the sent one. He sent me. In verse 46, he is the light of the world. Come and experience that light. And he's the son of the father, the son of God, God the son, in verse 49 to 50. The father who sent me, give me a command. I am the sent one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the light of the world, rescuing people from darkness. I am the son of God, God the son, who I am, boiling it all down for these people. Why I came, I came to reveal the father to you. Verse 44, if you believe me, you believe the father. If you see me, you've seen the father. I've come to reveal him. Verse 46, I've come to rescue you from darkness. If you believe in me, you'll not live in darkness anymore. And I've come to give you eternal life. I know that his command is everlasting life. The command of the Father is everlasting life. What is the command of the Father? Believe on the Son. Believe on the Son. And then finally, how to respond. Your choice to make. Believe me and you'll believe the Father. Believe me, and you'll not walk in darkness anymore. Believe me, and you'll have everlasting life. Believe, and you'll know God. Believe, and you'll know light. Believe, and you'll know life. But if you reject me, you'll remain in your darkness. And if you reject me, the word says here, you will be judged in the last day. Verse 48, the word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. Because when you stand before God on the last day, having rejected Jesus as Savior, you'll be judged for your sins. All your sins will be brought before you. Every single one that you've ever done, every lie, every thought, every piece of gossip, every sin you've ever done, if you're outside of Christ. And then the next question will be this. And what did you do with the Son of Glory? What did you do with the King of Kings? What did you do with Jesus of Nazareth? What did you do with this hour? You rejected him. So you'll be condemned because of your sin and because of your rejection of Jesus Christ. So come and believe Jesus is calling them before it's too late for them. Let me draw this then to a close. Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus as Savior, you've been brought out of darkness. Amen. Your eyes have been Opened to see him. Amen. Your heart has been softened. Amen. And you have eternal life now. And you've been drawn to the son. He has bore your judgment. And you will never know condemnation. Never know condemnation. He will never, no never, no never forsake. You live in the light of Jesus of Nazareth. God in the flesh. Risen from the dead. He is your life now. Unbeliever, you're still in your darkness. You're a member of the humanity that is under condemnation. You're under the rule of the vanquished foe, Satan. You do not know when God's mercy in your life will come to an end. Either through your death or through your heart being hardened as an act of judgment for continuing to refuse Jesus as Savior. If you die in this state, you will rise again to face judgment 
for your sin, for rejecting Jesus, the means of forgiveness of sin. Don't let the fear of man, don't let the love of man's praise, don't let anything hinder you any longer. Come and believe. Now I want to uh, finish off John's gospel because we didn't get to finish it. I just want to show you some things as we come to the, to the end of this whole series. In John chapter 1 to 12, which is where we managed to get to today and we finished it, the great miracle uh, that is beyond expectation is that God is amongst us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's incredible. The great miracle of John 13 to verse 17 is when Jesus says, I'm going to live inside of you. Not just amongst you, but in you. What an incredible thing. The Father and the Son will take up residence in the human heart. This is a mystery. No one ever knew this. And now it's being told to these disciples. These 12 guys, or 11 of them, are just being like, what? In me? And John 18 to 21, the great surprise is that God will be killed and risen again. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, I personally believe this is John's summary of everything. This is his command. The command of the Father to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he's commanded us. John 1 to 12, the great commandment throughout all of this is this. Believe. Believe who he is. Believe he's the Messiah. Believe he's the Son. Believe he's died and risen again. Believe in this, and you'll know life. That's the commandment throughout this whole section. Then we get to John 13 to 17 where Jesus is with his disciples and he says, a new commandment I've given to you, love. Now that you're in through belief, this is the commandment, love one another as I've loved you, right? So believe and once you're in, love. And John 18 to 21 is how it's all possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How is it possible to to know life through him? How is it possible for me to love my, my brothers and sisters through him living in me? Through him coming to earth, I have life if I believe. Through him coming into me, I can love my brothers and sisters. That's the great summary of John's gospel. So, friends, I hope I've done you a service of bringing you through John's gospel. I hope I've been able to help you see even a little more of the Lord Jesus. Like like climbing up a hill, which is why we have this here. The view gets more and more beautiful the higher you go. Isn't that true though? It gets, the higher up you get, the more beautiful the views are, uh, 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 wherever you are. You see further. You begin to see over certain valleys and hills you couldn't see over before. And you begin to see so much more spread in front of you. And, and my, my hope and my prayer is this through John's Gospel, that I've helped you to come up that hill even just two more steps. Even just, there's so much to Jesus. There's so much beauty and worth and value in him that even just two more steps up that mountain to see even just a little bit more beauty of our Savior, to see more of his loveliness. Uh, that's my hope and prayer for what we've been able to do in John's gospel. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, sing.